Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrea, it's great to be here. Do you know, one thing I wanted to say in case people think this, I feel quite nervous. And I think I just wanted to say that because I think I'm somebody who interviews people for a living. And I normally sit in your seat. And, and so sometimes people think that people who are on TV or who stand up and quite like giving talks or interviewing people don't have any nerves. And I just wanted to say that it's not true. And I'm experiencing that now sitting in this seat. So, you know, if ever, ever people think I can't do this because I'm nervous, that's not a reason not to do it. <laughs> I, I, Richard, thank you very much for mentioning this, because it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and we can we can get started with this one because I know, as you said, you've been you've worked for for the BBC for many years as a broadcaster, presenting news, and I want it was also my curiosity because Mark Twain said that there are only two types of speakers: those who get nervous and those who are liars, and and so I'm glad that you you were upfront about it. And I think it's very important for our audience. We've got the, the people who are listening to us, our business professionals, business leaders. And I think it's very important for them to be reminded, even by somebody like you, with your experience going live on TV, interviewing people many times, that you also feel the nerves. Mm. But then you decide to do something, whether that's going live or giving a presentation despite the nerves mm. that's the approach right yeah i love that quote that mark twain i've not heard that before i'm gonna steal that uh, if i may um i think for me it's probably and i wonder if this is the same for other people is that for me as somebody who's used to broadcasting the nerves aren't about the space they aren't about i don't want to talk in front of people or i don't like being on camera i'm used to that but I think for me and perhaps other people as well, the nerves are quite wrapped up in the, in the risk of making a wally of yourself, in the risk of, am I gonna say the right thing? Am I gonna be answered, able to answer the question? So I think often the nervousness for some people comes in, I'm not used to this space, but often it also comes from, I'm, I'm worried about the content and I'm worried, will I get caught out? Will I look foolish? Uh, and actually I think, for an interviewer, so your job or my job sometimes, if it's a friendly interview like this, is you know to help people with that and and to make them feel relaxed and to build rapport and to make them feel it's it's a safe space and and that most interviews, not all of the ones I've done, but when you're not interviewing a politician, most interviews are not combative. Yeah. No one, no one's a winner or a loser. It's not a question of somebody comes out looking stupid. They're collaborative. They are about giving the audience, the listener, the viewer, something of value, either entertaining them or telling them something or informing them. And so there shouldn't be a need to be worried that there's a wrong thing to say. But, but we all know that, but of course our brain still plays all the normal. Yeah, <laughs> a brain is a weird animal. And today I've got so many questions for you, Rachel, on all things, broadcasting, presenting news, asking questions, listening. Also, I know that you work as a career and personal uh, personal development coach. So there are many areas of connection between what you're doing now and your experience at, as a broadcaster. But let's stay with the, in this topic now. 
And I wouldn't say that it's the opposite, but when you tell me nerves and let's say public speaking or performing the anxiety, then what we want to achieve is we want to be confident communicators, confident presenters. And I found a, a quote or, or a line on your blog, which I loved that I have here in front of me. You were talking about confidence and I think it's so important. I'm going to read it here. It's uh, you said the confidence comes. And by the way, Rachel, we are going to you, you feel free to touch that not necessarily from a broadcasting or presenting angle, also in, from another angle, thinking about what you do at the moment as a coach. But you say the confidence comes from doing. Action does not follow confidence. Confidence follows action. And I think this is so important. It's such an important message, which has implications when it comes to public speaking and presenting, but in many other areas of our life in general. So would you like to, could you please explore that in just a little bit more detail? Confidence comes from doing, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, and I see this, it, it, you're right, it, it has implications for public speaking, but it also has a lot of implications for the people I work with who I'm trying to make a career change. What often stops us is we think, I don't feel confident. So I, I'm not confident standing up in front of people. I'm not confident at a job interview. I'm not confident that I can make this career change. So we think we'll sort of wait. We think when I feel more confident, I'll offer to give a presentation in the office. Or when I feel more confident, I'll look into the idea of setting up my own business. And we sit there waiting as if confidence comes along like buses you know if you wait long enough the confidence bus will rock up and you can hop on it sadly that's never going to happen and the truth is that we build confidence it's not something we, we know that it kind of comes and goes some days you feel really confident other days you don't some situations you feel naturally more confident in others you don't but ultimately you can build your confidence and the reason that I say confidence comes from action is there's a really interesting um, circle of confidence. It's sometimes called the confidence competence cycle. You can Google it. And it goes a bit like this, that normally we sit around thinking, I don't feel confident, so I won't do it. If you can just muster enough confidence or just some sheer bloody mindedness or some bit of chutzpah to think I'm going to start on this task, be it giving a talk of some kind, you, you have to get into action. <clears throat> And that can initially feel like a really scary space. So it's wise to start with something that's a little bit stretching, but not too much so. So you're not going to go and say, I'm going to now speak in front of 500 people. You say, I'm going to go and speak in front of, you know, my team. By doing that, you force yourself into action. And what people often think with their catastrophizing brain is this will be a total car crash and a disaster. But actually, when you think about it, the chances of that happening are really small. It might not be a triumph, but it's very unlikely to be, you know, the worst thing that anyone ever heard. And what happens as a result of taking the action is you are going to either find, oh, that was OK. So you think, oh, I feel a bit better about that. I feel I'm not as incompetent as I thought. Or you think, well, that wasn't great, but I can learn from that. I can get some feedback so I can get better because I've done it, I've seen what didn't work, and I can improve on that. So in both cases, your competence increases, even if it's only a tiny bit. And as your competence increases, when you try it again, 
you feel a little bit more confident because it's likely it goes a little bit better. And the more confident you feel, then you're back at the top with the next action. You think, well, maybe I'll try something a little bit more stretching. And it is a cycle that as you get into action, you grow your competence, even if there's the odd mishap along the way. And as your competence grows, so your confidence grows. So it, it, it's essentially, it's a fancy way of saying practice makes perfect, isn't it? That you, you can't get better at something unless you do it. And that requires a bit of stepping out and being a bit scared, but it will pay off. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most important things we can we can discuss, which which makes a huge difference for anybody who wants to become a, a better, more confident communicator. Confidence comes from doing. Thanks for sharing that. And I would let's let's start talking about your experience as an interviewer. You've been interviewing so many people. And I'm just curious, before we look at some any tips or suggestions that you have, how do you in your in your experience, how do you go about preparing for for an interview? Is there anything in particular that you do or that you don't do? I would love to learn more about your preparation before an interview. Yeah, great question. And it really varies. So I would say it depends a lot who you're interviewing and, and in what context. First of all, I should say that a lot of the time enrolling 24 hour news where I worked for a long time is you're mostly flying by the seat of your pants because you come in for your shift. You might be going to be on air for three hours and you know what the big topics of the day are. So you might have some foreign news, you might have some domestic stories, you might have a big political shenanigan going on that you're likely to have to get stuck into. So you sort of know the topic areas, but because you're working in a live evolving situation, you probably don't necessarily know who exactly you're going to be speaking to. Because while you're on air talking and presenting the news, you've got a team of producers behind you who are busy phoning relevant people to, you know, see if they can get a cabinet minister, see if they can get a spokesperson for the union, see if they can get a real person who this has happened to. <clears throat> so in that scenario, a lot of my work, I couldn't prepare in a very specific way. So I would day to day come into a shift and I would prepare in a topic led way. So I would know what the stories of the day were. So it's my job to kind of get as confident about them and knowledgeable about them as I could and then to just kind of go with it. That's probably unusual though, that's rolling news. And that's, that's something that you develop as a skill set. And the, the, the key to that is to develop a good working knowledge of big topics that will come up time and time again. So for example, you know, back in the day, I was doing Brexit practically every day. So that's your bread and butter. So you know that you need to understand, you know, what Article 50 is. You need to know what the Irish backstop is. You need to be able to explain the difference between a customs union and a free market or things like that. So a journalist's bread and butter is to kind of be always semi-prepared by keeping across things. I guess it's the same for a lot of people who might be speaking for their industry. It's just thinking, how do I build a good overall working knowledge of things that are happening in my industry, things that are likely to change, topics that tend to come up, things that are controversial, things which are um, developing and evolving where I might be required to give an opinion. So that has quite an interesting knock-on effect. You know, it's one thing for a journalist, but it, it has some pertinence to people um, talking generally. 
and uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off because you mentioned uh, something now, which is really again very much connected to to the idea of presenting an idea. It doesn't have to be news uh, as as you used to do, but you you said that it's very important to know your topic, know your message. And I think, Rachel, I don't know what you think about it, but when it, again, going back to what we were discussing before, confidence in, as a communicator, I think that a lot of people think that confidence comes from some sort of wishful thinking or internal attitude, whereas I think that he has not, or very little to do with that. I think that confidence, if we think about confidence in presenting in general, I think it comes from knowing your audience, knowing your message, knowing your topic, and then being prepared if possible. I think that if you know your audience, if you know your message, and if you can prepare, then most people will be confident. And also, you mentioned, and this is also another curiosity that I have. So you mentioned, I used to go live. So I think, of course, you had the experience where I don't know what they do, but maybe, okay, Rachel, three, two, one, live, something like that. So I have a, one of my clients at the moment told me, you know what, I know how to deliver a, an effective presentation, which is engaging. But as soon as I get in front of a camera, and I, especially when I need to go live, then it doesn't work. I'm not as engaging. I'm not as authentic. I can't. I, I can't deliver my messages in in the same way. So, what's your experience from that perspective? Going live, and I don't know whether it was possible that to edit something or whether whether things were working or not. You had to continue. Could you tell us more about your experience of going live? Yeah, that's a really good question. And in some ways, my answer may not be that helpful because I love going live. To me, that's an adrenaline rush. But I totally understand that I think for a lot of people, you're, you start to get in your own way because just the very fact that it's live and that there are lights and a camera and it, none of it can be edited or undone does up the ante. And I think probably the way to look at that is and it's hard, but is to almost try and step out of the situation. And just, in, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I was given when I was training as a journalist is, you know, when you talk into a microphone for radio, or if you look into a camera, it's just to imagine one person there. Because of course, the hard thing is thinking, oh my gosh, I'm live, there's hundreds, thousands of people watching me. And that can make just the heart goes and the palms get sweaty. And I think trying to remember just talking to a normal person and the time pressure as well can feel scary when you're live you think I've got to say something very coherent and I've only got two and a half minutes to do it that means most of us start to lose our train of thought quite quickly so perhaps again it, it is practice it's almost getting people to and I'm sure with you know media training people I, I've never worked as a media trainer but I think you get used to having people sort of throw a question at you and to think on your feet and I think that is a different skill, isn't it? I think it's one thing to prepare a message and to craft it and deliver it. Thinking on your feet can be quite, quite scary. Um, but in, if you can prepare, if you can get a sense of what you're likely to be asked, if you can practice talking just for sort of 30 seconds, 45 seconds a minute, because often questions that are asked of you by journalists live, they don't want a long answer. So being able to say what you want to say quite succinctly is, is really helpful as well. 
but I'm trying to think about Do you have, questions. no, that's, that's great. Do you have any other, because I just want to give you the opportunity to mention anything else, just in case there is anything else, otherwise no problem at all. Somebody, let's, let's consider the, the scenario where you are not presenting something, you are, say that you are part of a, a panel mm. conversation. So you're one of the members of the panel and there is somebody else who's asking questions. Do you have any, or it could be that, or it could be that you gave a presentation and then it's time to invite the audience to ask some questions. Do you have any tips, suggestions, best practices for how to master the Q&A? Anything at all that, that comes to mind? If you're the one being asked the questions? Yes. I think it's to realise that you're not expected to be hugely polished in a Q&A, actually, to take the pressure off and, and realise this becomes a conversation now. This becomes people asking you a question that you're allowed to consider. I think one of the things I learned that has a similar, perhaps, um, symmetry, that the hardest thing for a journalist on 24-hour news is breaking news. Obviously, it's one thing to read a script and to have an autocue, but when suddenly a story starts to break and you, you've got, you're off script, you've got nothing of use on the autocue, you've got probably someone talking in your ear, you've got pieces of information coming up on your computer screen from the news agencies where it's all still quite confused. When I was starting, and I think people doing a Q&A do this, is I thought they'd say, right, break the news that, um, you know, such and such a person has died or there's been a terrible fire. Or, and I would think, oh, my gosh, I need to be able to say this all so brilliantly and succinctly. And you would start reading off, you know, um, here's some breaking news. Um, Reuters are saying this. And then you lose your train of thought. I realised that taking your time and actually almost commenting on what you were doing so you buy yourself time. So in a, in a news scenario, it might be, oh, we've just had some, some breaking news through. Let me give you the headline, first of all. They're telling us this. Now, just while I explain that, I'm just going to have a quick look. And, and actually almost narrate what I was doing. I realized that wasn't cheating. That bought me time. And I think, although it's not a total parallel, I think with a Q&A, you can do a bit of that. You can say, not... To some extent, it's that kind of cop out of, oh, that's a really interesting question. But there are more interesting ways of saying that and say, ah, yeah, thanks so much for the question. What, what strikes me to begin with is that maybe there are two ways of looking at it and almost take the audience with you. If you're, if you're exploring it, almost let them know that and say, I've not looked at it like that before. But my first thought is probably this. And I'm also thinking this element could be important. Um, so as I think about it now, yeah, and then perhaps, you know, and almost let people see your thought process if you're in territory which is a little bit unfamiliar to you, because people that's enjoy great. that. That's, that's great. It's a great piece of advice. And, and let's look at this from the other perspective, and you have a lot of experience here as well, you asking mm. questions. So do you have, so maybe you are interviewing somebody or you are you are hosting an event you are the MC of, of an event in all in all those kind of uh, kinds of situations and you need to interview somebody you need to ask mm -hmm. some interesting and and powerful questions anything and by the way I know that this is also useful in your current role as a coach, asking questions and listening. We can talk about the power of listening later on as well. 
do you have any tips and suggestions in from this perspective when it comes to asking powerful questions? Absolutely. I think, first of all, it very much depends. This comes back to your point about preparing, because I, I gave the example of when you don't prepare, but most of the time, obviously, you do prepare. And this links very carefully with very closely with the kind of questions you ask. It will depend, first of all, on, on what is the outcome you want from the interview? What kind of interview are you doing? So some interviews are very straight. They are information gathering interviews, essentially. You may be interviewing someone who is far more of an expert than you are. So, you know, interviewing that I would be doing through COVID, there's no point me trying to read every single thing I can about the mutations of COVID-19. I will never understand it better than the person I'm interviewing. So with interviews like that, you think, I don't need to be the expert here. I'm not trying to show off. I'm not trying to prove what I know. My job is to ask really simple questions, to almost be the vessel for my for the audience, for the viewer, for the listener, and, and not try and be overly complicated or clever. So ask very uh, open-ended, simple questions, which aren't definitely not compound questions, the kind of, you know, well, do we need to do this or should we be thinking about this? And also should we, you know, the person's like, well, that was three questions in one. Uh, so simplicity when you're doing those kind of information gathering uh, interviews, I think is key and not trying to showboat, not thinking I need to show what I know in this question. You hear it a lot, I think, on, on Radio 4, I have to say. I'm a great listener to the Today programme, but there's one journalist who used to be on that whose questions were so long because they weren't, they were part statement and part question. So they were sort of, well, given the complexity of the situation in Syria and the recent resignation of such and such and the change in policy of this, and you know, you'd be like, what's the question? We don't need to know that you know everything about Syria. We want to hear from the other person. So that, that's worth knowing. I think there are different kinds of questions needed if you're holding someone to account, if it's a slightly more challenging uh, interview. So your questions may be more closed questions, which is definitely a no-no in coaching, but in some forms of journalism is needed, particularly with politicians who try and slither off the hook. They do sometimes need to be asked, is it this or is it that? You know, yes or no? Well, you know, what word are we going to use? Because the word is very specific. And are we saying this happened or didn't happen? Um, so that then is quite forensic. And again, your preparation might need to have, have almost... Um, I never worked on Newsnight, but my husband did. And, and he said that they would actually almost, um, what's the word, sort of plot interviews. And I'm not suggesting you generally wouldn't have to do this, but thinking if you're trying to get through a complex interview, you think, okay, I'm gonna ask this question of this politician, they're likely to duck the question. So if they go down this route, we'll then ask that. If they go down, and you almost strategize the interview. So that can be quite interesting. You might need that forensic level, probably not in normal scenarios. And I think, Preparing and asking questions in most interviews is actually simply about curiosity. Because most people we interview, and, and the bread and butter of a lot of journalists, particularly in local news, where I kind of cut my teeth, is interviewing real people. And they don't need fancy questions. They need you just to bring your, your human side and let them tell their story. So the questions should encourage them to tell their story. So lovely open questions, and yet if they're nervous, the preparation may, may have been around really reading up on, on their story and their experience. So you can prompt them a little bit because sometimes people lose their train of thought and you know they've got some beautiful analogy to make or some brilliant particular part of the story that you don't want them to miss. And you can 
nudge them and help them, but not because you're badgering them, but because you want to show showcase them and let them tell their story in a way that the listeners will really enjoy. So those kind of questions where you're just saying, you know, how did that feel? Um, you know, tell us more about your daughter or, you know, some really difficult interviews you have to do as a journalist, but, but that just letting something breathe a little bit. Yeah. And you said curiosity, which is so important. For example, for this podcast, there are a number of criteria that we consider when inviting people like you to, to come on the show. And there are, of course, criteria like geography, because there has to be a fit audience-wise, and, and also the, the 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 let's say the level of experience of of the guests and the audience and everything but my number one criterion is am i am i generally curious about this topic because if i'm not i think you know this better than me rachel but i think that the audience will sense it mm -hmm. if as the interview i'm not interested in what you're saying i'm not interested in that question and i'm just asking that question because i have to tick the box mm -hmm. It, it doesn't it doesn't work and i have a follow-up question because you you described an example which we often experience as presenters which is you give a presentation you invite the audience to to ask some questions and then many things can happen but sometimes you have that person who starts asking a question and that question goes on and on and on and on. So, and again, if, if, if any of my questions lead nowhere, no problem at all. I've got many others. But do you have any, any, any tips, any, any suggestions if you are the presenter and, and that happens? What, what should we do in those cases? Yeah, I, that's a great, that's a great one. And I think being a presenter requires a, an odd mix of skills. Because on the one hand, I've said, take yourself out of it, step back let things breathe, let people have their say. But you're right that in certain scenarios, your job is not just to ask questions, it's almost to kind of herd cats. It's to stick to time, it's to make sure we keep moving, it's to make sure lots of people get a chance to ask their question, it's to make sure we don't go off on some tangent. It's often to almost protect the person you're interviewing. If you're the host of a Q&A, you, know, you, you need to make sure you're not putting that person, if, if they'd come just to talk about their book or, you know, I'm not saying a politician, but, you know, somebody who's come out as a lovely guest, as a gesture of goodwill to talk to your audience, you don't want them to be stuck with someone asking daft questions or rambling questions. So I think then it is having the courage to say, often with humour, humour is a great thing to use, isn't it? And say, okay, I think there was a question in there somewhere but you lost us a bit along the way. I think you're, what you're asking is this. So make an assumption yourself if you think, I sort of know where this person's going. Or, and you do sometimes have to be a bit tough and say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna cut you off because I sense we're losing the thought. What was the question? I mean, I have heard, I have heard people doing Q and A's who say, that's not a question, that's a statement. What's your question? And they can be quiet. And I think that can be, you have to read the room a little bit, don't you? And sense, is this, is this quite fun? Can we be a bit jokey? Is this person going to be deeply offended? But yeah, I think having the sense that, no, you're allowed to do that, that your job is to control this a little bit as well and to, to trust yourself. As long as you're not rude, you can be firm. Yeah, now, of course, because you, you don't want to be rude to that person. But at the same time, if you don't do anything, you are not 
if I can say, respecting the other people in the room, the, the other people in the audience. So it's it's a fine balance that we need to be able to, to orchestrate. And, and what about instead the situation where you, again, you are not the interviewer for the other side and you are you get asked a, a difficult question or a hostile question or a question you don't have an answer to. Do you have any any thoughts there? Any suggestions? Any any best practices? Yeah, to... it's, it's two different strands there, aren't there? I think when you genuinely don't have an answer, the worst thing you can do is probably try and sort of cover that up and give half an answer. I think it's actually fine. And again, it's often to do with confidence and poise to say, do you know that that's very interesting? I don't have those facts to hand but to offer somebody the chance to come back to you. And if you think it is something you could find out, you can say, I would love to find out for you. You know, do if you let me have your email, I'll, I'll get those statistics for you. That's, that's one thing. And I think it's fine to do that. If you're in a panel discussion, what can work quite well, and actually the interviewer should help you here, is to include other people and say, you know, I don't know, but I'm, because often as a guest on a panel, you may well know the other contributors or you know their background. You might say, Oh, that's not my area of expertise, but I think Sarah would probably have a great, you know, view on that without landing her in it. I mean, if you genuinely think she does, not to just pass the buck. Um, I think hostile questions, again, that's different. And I think you can, you can rebuff those. And what can feel odd when that happens is it can feel very personal because you set, you think things are taking a turn. Often though, that question is peculiar to that one person asking it. And, and let, making sure your brain reminds you of that and you don't think, oh my gosh, the whole room hates me, <laughs> unless you genuinely sense that and you're in a very controversial setting. But generally, you might get an odd question from someone and you think, no, that person has their own agenda. And I, I need to think the rest of the room is with me. That's really important to think. I'm not, I'm not the bad guy here. The rest of the room isn't now looking at me badly. They're probably thinking, oh gosh, that person really needs to shut up or has asked a deeply inappropriate question. So again, I think you can just say, Mm, yeah, I think that's not really a question for now, is it? Um, or, and, and push back a little bit. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And what I hear you say is that in the end, it is okay not to have an answer sometimes. We are not expected as, as presenters, as professionals, communicators to have an answer to everything. I think it was Richard Feynman who said that I'm just paraphrasing that, but he did say something along the lines of, you know what, it is possible sometimes to say, I don't know, mm. which, which, is, which is useful. And I've got here, Rachel, a testimonial that, uh, that I found on, on your online about you. And it's connected to one of the things we discussed, but I would love to give you an opportunity to to explore it in a little bit more detail, just in case you've got other ideas in mind. And I'm going to read it here. It says, Rachel's presentation skills are second to none. Her ability to read a script whilst appearing to be composing her words off the cuff works perfectly well when presenting a, in a word. And I think that was the context. So I was, I was intrigued by this idea of reading a script while appearing to be composing your words off the cuff. So how, how do you go about it in terms of 
like having a, a, a clear message that you want to communicate at the same time, being able to, I wouldn't say improvise or why not even improvise depending on what's needed in, in the room. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, thank you. It's lovely of you to bring that up. Yeah, that was that was related to a direct an award ceremony I did where I did have when they say a script, they mean a literal script. So not something that I devised that I thought these are my messages I want to get out, but actually sort of the three categories for this are. I think if you can master this skill, it makes a big difference to present presenting. Because there's nothing worse than somebody who reads out loud like they're reading out loud. And I'm trying to think how to help people do that better because I think, and I, I, I mean this not in a, an arrogant way, but it's something as someone who's always enjoyed acting that I feel able to do with some degree of naturalness. And I, I know some people find they start reading and, and they sound very much like they're reading. So how do people, how can people get better at that? I think sometimes using, again, it requires practice. You don't do this on the fly if you've never done it. But making sure, first of all, that the script is written in spoken English so that, you know, you aren't saying, you know, uh, they're, they're, they are, but they're and things like that. You know, just the little um, compound words that, that help. I think it's sometimes just playing around a little bit with choosing your own words, putting in a little bit. So what can be nice is putting in a little bit of emotion into things. So rather than just reading uh there are let's move on now to the three awards for it's sort of looking up and thinking i don't need to read that i can just say right next coming up now it, are we going to look at these three awards you know even though i might stumble a bit more i'm saying the same thing but it, it just sounds more like i'm making it up so in areas where you can use the script more as a little template and use your own words and then just return very hard to the script when you've got important names to read out or categories or job titles I think one of the places, this is a slight tangent, but that people do this poorly and I think can be the death of a lot of sort of Q&A sessions and interviews is the intro. I think when people read people's biogs in a sort of dreadful Wikipedia style way, they say, you know, Rachel Schofield was born and went to this place and she is the head of ABC and has qualified from XYZ. And you just think, it's just not a real person. You know, you'd be much rather find a little interesting story about somebody or a quirky little fact about them or something that they're passionate about and, and use that. It's about connecting with something that's a little bit more real rather than any sort of reams and lists of facts. I don't yeah. know if that answers your question. I've it does. No, 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 it does. It does very well. And Rachel, I would also like to explore another area another skill set which which is really useful for communicators in general but also i know very important in your role as as a career coach which is listening mm. and and the power of deep active listening so would you like to and i know it's a broad question but would you like to share your your views your thoughts around the importance of listening for effective communication and for achieving other other goals as well yeah i think i think it's huge both as a coach and as a journalist and i think it's why linking back to your point about preparation, in most instances, as journalists, at least after, you know, perhaps not on their first job, um, but most journalists, and I think 
most skilled communicators and interviewers over time would never start an interview. Well, you may disagree with me, Andrea. I'd love to see your piece of paper. I would never start an interview with a list of questions. Certainly not written out. I remember I, I recently chaired um, an interesting debate around um, women and motherhood and the sort of work-life balance and the juggle. And the person who'd arranged it said, could you send me your questions? And I said, well, I don't have any questions to send you. I didn't say it quite like that because that would sound a bit rude. Um, but because I don't work with questions, I tend to work in topic areas. So I might have sort of scribble. So, you know, we're going to talk about work, you know, slash money, slash your boss, slash, you know, the little little sort of offshoots, almost like a spider diagram. Because the problem if you if you script or structure any kind of interview too closely is you stop listening exactly, is you lose any spontaneity. And, and you can actually see people do it where they're so worried about what they're going to ask next and so trying to follow their piece of paper that they've stopped listening to the fascinating thing. And the person could be saying, yes, and once I killed two large elephants and then, you know, strung them up on the washing line in my garden. And then they say, yes, and, and what is your favourite movie of all time? You know, I'm being facetious, but I think you can miss gems if you don't listen. It can feel worrying because often you know if you're the interviewer, you've got a certain amount of time and you've got a certain number of things you want to get through. So you are almost having to make decisions in real time about, OK, that was interesting. Do I go with that? Do I stay with where I was heading? And I think, again, it, it takes time to master that, to be confident in your decision to think, no, I think I think we need to follow that. Or to, to catch it and mark it and say, that was really interesting. I'm, I'm and almost I'm, I'm making a note because I'd love to come back to that. I'm going to stay for a minute with this, but you know we don't want to miss that that you were saying. So yes, the listening actually should inform in many ways the shape of, of most interviews. Maybe not with politicians who need to be kind of nailed on particular specific points, but for most interviews they are conversations, and it is about just seeing where it takes you, being curious as you said, and listening hard for changes in energy. This is around coaching, but I think it works for, for interviewing as well. When you sense a shift in energy, the interviewee becomes more animated or dynamic. You think we're on, we're on rich territory here. We've got good pickings. This person's into this. They're not sort of resisting me. I can feel they've shifted into a space where they're really comfortable and they're gonna enjoy talking about this. So that sort of energy shift, the body language where somebody interviewee sort of leans in and gets animated, go with that rather than sort of killing that off and going, well, well, let's return to the very dull thing I was talking about before. And similarly, people's choice of language. Sometimes it's just interesting to, to note a particular word someone uses and say, now that was fascinating. You obviously feel very strongly about that. Or tell me more about why you said that that intrigues you rather than that it sort of vaguely interests you. Or, so, yeah, I think trying to listen and put aside all the assumptions that you've made is hard you do have to do it in coaching a lot and put aside the voice that's chipping in reminding you of all the stories you've got that are exactly the same as that person you know you think oh I'd like to talk about when I met Ben Elton as well you know and you think no this isn't about me this is about creating a space going with this person and really providing a space holding a space for them to really shine and give us something interesting yeah, and I've got, I've captured a few thoughts here based on what you said. Now, everything you said, and this is for our listeners, is super useful. 
also in the context of giving a presentation. When you give a presentation, when you are asked a question, either during the presentation or in the Q&A, the mistake I see all the time is that as soon as the question starts, we start thinking about what to answer. And so that's not active and deep listening. So I know it's not easy if we if we don't have experience doing that, but what we need to do is we, we really need to listen, not think about what we are going to answer, and we need to listen until the very last word. And then we can start thinking about our turn and, and our, our thoughts on, on, the, on the question. So very much connected to presentation skills in general. Uh, and also, in just because you, you, you mentioned in terms of structure, now, for example, what I have in front of me, I also do it like you, I've got topics. So I knew that today I wanted to ask you something about confidence and then nervousness when presenting and questions and listening. And that's it. Then I, I don't have specific questions. But what I do have, and this works for me, I'm not, I'm not, an ex I'm not a professional interviewer. What, what does work for me is if I find something which to me is interesting, like it could be, for example, your testimonial or the what I found on your blog when you said the confidence comes from doing. So then I actually write it down because it helps me highlight spe just specific points that I would like to bring up. Yeah. And, and just because you mentioned politicians, just out of curiosity. So when you interview politicians, is it like, like, do you have to, normally, do you have to follow a very strict structure? Do you, do they need to know the questions in advance? Normally, what's your experience That's there? That's a great, a great question. And I think it really intrigues people. Generally speaking, at the BBC, you would never and I say that with great, you would never give anybody a list of questions in advance. Certainly not a politician. You might, again, depends on the interview. Obviously, if you were interviewing a very vulnerable person or somebody who you just wanted to hear their story, of course, it might be appropriate to say, this is what I'm going to ask you about roughly. People, one of the things, actually a good tip, sorry, I digress, but a good tip if you're ever being interviewed, it, it is acceptable to say, could you give me an idea what your first question is going to be? Sometimes people do that to me on set. A caveat, when people do that to me on a live set, I often don't know what my first question is going to be because I'm still dealing with Brexit and I'm about to speak to this person about, you know, cruelty to dogs. So I, I always worry that they probably think what do you, they, that I'm about to try and trick them because when they say, what's your first question going to be, I look at them blankly and they probably think, ah, oh, she's got a really difficult one for me, whereas I'm actually just thinking, I'll, I'll get to my first question on dogs when I've de dealt with, you know, the European Union. Um, but I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> no, which is, which, is, which is totally fine. We were talking about... Ah, I... Yes, questions, lists of questions. So, yes, a politician would never expect to be given a list of questions. Um, I just think from a point of journalistic integrity these politicians are big enough and stupid enough to look after themselves and they certainly would not expect to be given a list of questions in advance you know they've hmm. got to think on their feet that's their job they've got to be honest and we're not trying to help them out by making it easy for them so generally speaking no and from a from a real sort of rolling news point of view there just wouldn't be time and who hmm. would write those questions because the, the presenter is busy doing other things. They're already interviewing other people. So by the time that person comes on, they're thinking on their feet. 
the producer could write a set of questions, but the presenter, all this is interesting, the presenter and the producer, although they work collaboratively, there's normally a little healthy element of sort of rivalry. The presenter thinks, I'm not, I'm not, I don't sit here and get told what questions to ask. I've got my own questions, thank you very much. So it's always a funny interplay of, yes, you're open to somebody else suggesting some questions, but you feel like this is my show. I'll ask the questions that I want. Um, so no, is the short answer to your question is most people, I would not provide them with any questions in advance unless they were somebody who was, I just wanted to support and help and, and needed mm -hmm. a little bit of handholding, which of course would be, would be appropriate. I, I would have said differently. I, I just assumed because of my lack of knowledge that, that with politicians, then they, they wanted to have the questions in advance. So it's good to know. Mm. You, you always learn something new. And I, I also want, because I'm looking at you as, as you as we have this conversation, and I want to ask you another question, which is all about, and I don't know if, you've, if, if it comes 100% natural to you. I guess with your experience now it does, but maybe you've got some tips and suggestions for our audience as well. Your body language is, is fantastic. You're very energetic and if i think about your hand gestures and do you do you think about these do you think about your body language as you communicate your ideas or does it come a hundred percent natural to you and also do you have any tips or suggestions for for our audience if they want to improve their body language for maximum impact yeah good question I think for me, I talking to you now, I feel more able to, to move around. I think as a news presenter, I would be stiller. And a lot of news presenters will put their sort of forearms on the desk and, and there's an expected level of professionalism, possibly seriousness that's expected. <clears throat> but that said, I to me, some kind of natural hand gestures, some sense of letting your face be animated, I think is really powerful. You can overdo it as a newsreader. So you wouldn't, I wouldn't read the news quite like this. Um, but I definitely would encourage people to, to be themselves. I think I probably do naturally speak a lot with my hands and I, I use my body in that way. So I haven't sort of cultivated anything or taken particular techniques, but I think trying to feel, don't, feeling like you can do what you want. Obviously, if, you, if people tell you you have an odd tick or you do something too much or, you know, then you might need to turn it down. But let people see you. But I definitely, I think, I think for people who, when I interview people, what I want them to bring in most cases, if it's appropriate, is, a, is some kind of energy. It doesn't have to be wild and over the top, but, but somebody who's prepared to use their face and smile and be natural and be human is really important. So I would always encourage people to, to try and be themselves and not think, oh, I'm now doing an interview. Do I have to sit like this or do I have to sit up more straight? Um, is, is try and keep connected to the fact you're talking to a human being and do what you would normally do. And, and just one thought, actually, you said, do I do anything specific? The only time I consciously make certain gestures is in our new studio, most of the time you're behind the desk, occasionally you're on what we call the catwalk, um, which is, you know, you're standing with a big screen behind you doing some kind of graphic where you might be talking through vaccination rates for COVID. And so you've got a graph and then at that point you, you could, because it's all self-explanatory, the people who do graphics are fantastic. You could stand and still look at the camera and it will all magically appear behind you. 
but this is a nice point for people giving presentations generally. I think it's lovely to interact a little bit with, with what's behind you, to use a hand and to point um, and to you know go off script a little bit if you need to and say, you know, this one, you know, the big, the big red one here, what this represents, you know, rather than saying column A is this, you know, you can say, right, let's take a look. See the second one here, you know, as if you were talking to somebody normally, you pointing and it's not play school. We don't need to overdo it. But I think it's much more engaging than someone just standing with statistics and reading out loud. It is. It is more engaging, more dynamic. And another reason why this is useful is because a lot of people tell me that they don't know what to do with their hands when presenting. Not when they have a conversation with a friend, of course. With a, with, when we talk with friends, we don't think about what we're doing with our hands. Yeah. Whereas as soon as it becomes a formal presentation, they seem to be taking a life of their own and we don't know what to do with them. And, and the thing that we need to understand is that our hands want something to do. Mm. And so often it's useful, as you said, to give them something to do. And pointing at your slides or the screen you've got behind you is just something that we are giving the hands to do. And it could be just holding a clicker. You are giving something to, to, do, to do. And um, yeah, that's why this is useful. And, and Rachel, as we are approaching the conclusion of this conversation, which I enjoyed really much, very useful, lots of tips. Are there any any books or it doesn't have to be a book it could be anything else any resources beyond your own for now that if you think about everything we've discussed broadcasting presenting news asking questions listening so lots of topics different topics but they're all connected any any particular books or resources that you would recommend to to our listeners it's a good question I should have prepped for that. We talked about preparation. I'm going to say something a bit controversial, which is uh, because I, this comes up in coaching. What often stops people making progress is because they think there is a right way to do something. So they think if I just read one more book, if I just listen to one more podcast, if I just uh, watch another video on, you know, a TED talk, I, I'll, I'll master this. I just need to find the magic formula and then I can do it and controversial I would sometimes say stop looking and start doing it's that same thing of yes obviously there are great people who can give you ideas and tips but sometimes the best way to find out what works for you is not to try and be a copycat of someone else or to read oh yes I should put my hand at two o'clock and 10 o'clock and sort of move them like, you know, because it becomes very unnatural. So I think one of the best things you can do is actually sometimes just explore what feels right to you and to practice and to get a friend to interview you or to, you know, chair a panel discussion with your three children and just try something and think that felt weird. That was fun. I liked it this way. I felt an idiot that way. So what can I do differently? And almost trust yourself a bit more to start experimenting because where we started is you you learn by doing you get better by doing and yes there's valuable information out there but nothing beats getting off your backside and having a go um, so Actually, that would yeah. be my advice <laughs> no it's great i love that and as i told you at the very beginning rachel i loved that line in your blog i think it is i do believe it is one of the most if not the most important thing to to consider confidence comes from doing and 
Is there anything else? If people want to connect with you, where, where do they find you? Uh, and also, any do you have any requests, any asks, or anything at all, anything else that you'd like to share? Maybe is there a question that you would have loved for me to ask you and I didn't do it? Anything, anything else that you'd like to include? I think... So if people want to find me, a good place if you want to talk about um, careers, obviously, uh, and career coaching is my website, which is www.rachelscofield.co.uk. If you want to talk presenting skills and things like that, I, I do do a little bit of work with people on that. Um, LinkedIn is probably the place, just Rachel Schofield. Um, what would I say that we didn't talk about? I think... Again, it maybe is a repetition of what I've just said, but I think it's that idea of rather than looking for the perfect way, rather than thinking I need to answer this question in particular, the interviews that I do with people that I enjoy is when I speak to people who say that I set the bar, this sounds like I'm setting the bar really low. It's actually really high. Don't be boring and speak human. Those would be my two pieces of advice. If I've had an interview with someone, they may not have said something amazingly impressive. They may not be the greatest expert, but they said something interesting. They, they took me on a journey. They told an interesting story. They gave an interesting example from their own life. So they were interesting. They weren't boring. But it's amazing how many speakers are boring. They might be deeply knowledgeable, but they're boring. And, that, that, you know, for journalists, we become quite ruthless. I sound very bit mean about it, but, you know, I interview a lot of people in any given shift. I used to. And the ones that are memorable to me are just the people who said something that stuck. It, it wasn't because it was wildly new necessarily, but just they expressed it in a way that was not dull and they spoke human. I couldn't bear interviewing people who sort of talk as if they've just swallowed a press release or they think, or you can tell that they're going through the, I have two key messages to get through and I will do them regardless of your questions. I'd be like, please, we're beyond this. Talk to me as a human being, share your experience, say what's important, tell me what's something that's surprising and we'll get on just fine. Rachel, thank, thank you so much. I love that as well. And uh, I really appreciated your, your approach today because not only did you share a lot of insights and knowledge, but you made it also fun and enjoyable for me. And Thank you very much again. So for our listeners, remember, don't be boring, speak human. And Rachel, thank you very much again. All the very best. Let's keep in touch. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.